0: Hi, friend. I'm Sarah, and welcome to the Nerds Guide to Financial Independence podcast. I am here to show you that financial independence can be for anyone who wants it badly enough and that investing in real estate doesn't have to be scary, take a vast DIY knowledge, or involve heaps of debt. When I am not sharing my own progress to FI, I'll be picking the brains of fellow like-minded debt-conscientious investors. I am so glad that you are here, my fellow aspiring retirees. Hey guys, Sarah here. Um, I'm back today to get the podcast, you know, season, I think I'll count this as season three kicked back off again. And I have a wonderful guest that I've been wanting her to be on for a long time now because she is an attorney by day, but a real estate investor. And I don't know how you have spare time, but you guys self manage over 100 units. Is that right? So I yeah, have been right. wanting you on for a really long time. And so we're pumped today to talk to you guys. And I think you guys are going to love Bonnie and I'll let you kind of get started and tell who you are and where you, I guess, start with like who you are, what you do, how you kind of got into real estate. Like what's your, what's your origin story for real estate?
1: <laughs> Everyone, I'm Bonnie Gallum. I, as she said, I'm a real estate attorney by day, but I actually got into real estate when I was in law school, when I met my now husband. He was investing around the college and law school that I was attending. And I actually thought uh, I went to law school with the intention of being a litigator. I did that for several years out of law school actually I need time to like breathe and switched into a more transactional practice. And plus behind the scenes for several years, I was kind of handling our real estate affairs, landlord tenant stuff, asset production stuff, our transactional stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I really love doing this and I'd love to do it for other investors. And so about three years ago, I hung my shingle and started my own law firm um, and I haven't looked back. And so I'm a licensed attorney in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And then I also have a, uh, side business, uh, with a program called Landlord Law School, which educates and provides like legal templates and training and resources for, uh, uh small landlords largely. That's
0: amazing. So is it, did you join Landlord Law School? Is that your business? How did that kind of get started or how did you get connected with that? That's amazing. So where did you build out your platform on? I'm just curious because I
1: so constantly building. <laughs> is, yeah. It's on Kajabi. If you're familiar yeah. with Kajabi. Yeah.
0: It's fantastic. i really enjoyed being on Kajabi as well. So if you are in, are you if you're dabbling in the Instagram business world, both of us are two votes for Kajabi.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. It's a great all-in-one platform, although I will admit I've moved away from it as an all-in-one. Like I have a separate email provider, a separate landing page provider. Um, but in terms of like, I think the delivery of the course, it's clean, it's intuitive. Um, and it's been like flawless in terms of like delivery for my students. And so I, I really enjoyed it.
0: And so you, so you're your husband met in college. So I want to unpack your story a little bit. So, or you were in law school and so was he actually your landlord or not? What, no, he's not, that... okay. <laughs> he not my landlord. Okay.
1: Not my landlord.
0: So did you get a discount on rent? I want to know. <laughs> no.
1: I know. I was like, <laughs> maybe this is actually not a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I think that would have been too close to literal home. Yeah. Um, so he was in college. I was in law school. I did not you know, rock the cradle, but <laughs> my husband is Israeli. And so he did the army service in Israel before coming here. And so he was just like an older college student at the time. Um, and so he was doing that. It was kind of a little bit of a family business. His grandfather was kind of stepping out of it. He was kind of taking over it. And he just, it was a great time to be real estate investors in Philly because it was, you know, a time and it still really is a, is a big time of appreciation in Philadelphia. And I want to say it was a little bit like less of competitive market at the time. I and mean, this was like pre bigger pockets phenomenon, you know, Yeah, uh, maybe there was that book, you know, rich dad, poor dad out there, but it, not everyone and their mom was like in real estate in some <laughs> way or another, which is kind of how it feels like right now, which is both really exciting. Cause I love the opportunity of real estate, but also it just makes things a lot more competitive.
0: Right. I keep wondering if it's because I just follow other real estate investors or if everyone and their brother is literally talking about real estate. And I think it's a little bit above <laughs> because I'm like, my circle is definitely real estate, but it's getting so much more commonplace to talk to people about, you know, why aren't I reducing my expenses? Why am I not like owning a couple rental properties? It's fascinating to me. So I'm glad that you've noticed this as well. Like I swear it's like a bigger pockets thing.
1: Yeah. I'm like, is it like confirmation bias? Like, is it just because like, At this point, like all of our friends are real estate (laughs) investors and I work in real estate things. But then, you know, I look at like my bigger circle. um, I think it it is a little bit of confirmation bias.
0: Yep. A little bit for sure. I talked to a realtor the other day and I was like, well, you know, bigger pockets. And they said, no, I don't. I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) So apparently it is a confirmation bias somewhat. (laughs) It's like, how do you not know what
1: bigger pockets is? But. yeah, that's one of those things that I feel like I take for granted at this point that most yeah. people assume that they they know that. but and it's also been really surprising to me, even just other real estate attorneys, other realtors that just because you're in real estate doesn't mean you're in real estate investing. Like they really are two different worlds, even for Very. lenders and things like that. And so um, I think when it comes to like picking professionals and whatnot, it's not just enough to be like, oh, this person is a realtor. Therefore, they can help me.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, about what time or what year or so did you and your husband meet? So, you were, I'm guessing like 2012, it sounds like, because yeah. you're like past 2008, but you're pre bigger yeah. pockets. I'm like, what time arrow is that in?
1: Yeah. I want to say I met him in. 2013 early 2013 and he was doing it for a few years before I met him
0: and so it sounds like he took over some units from his family and then you guys have kept acquiring since then yeah you know how many he took over and how many how much you've grown it by because 100 units is a ton
1: so we I want to make it very clear we didn't inherit anything we kind of we we bought his grandfather out slowly right. And that was a few dozen at uh, not a few dozen doors, not a few dozen properties. And then we used that to just kind of burr and probably scale the next sixty plus units or so. I don't. I'm trying to think offhand which buildings we had when. Um, and the the vast majority were ones that we kind of took over on our own. Yeah. So burr strategy was something you guys
0: definitely used.
1: Oh yes. Although it wasn't called that then. I feel like it was just called like. Buy things cash and then refi them later.
0: Which yeah.
1: is why David Green came up with something really catchy called Burr because that's a mouthful otherwise. Right, exactly. So
0: for people that don't know what Burr is, essentially you're buying a house, you renovate it. You uh, typically you try to buy it cash if you're able to, and so you can kind of leverage. Like what I'm trying to do is like leverage some properties I own, which is probably what you guys were doing to buy a house cash. You were using like a line of credit then.
1: No, we we had cash. I mean, most of our properties we bought at auction. And so they okay. were pretty inexpensive at the, at the time. Back yeah. like, then, like auctions, you could actually get things. Yeah. Um and the,
0: I miss the glory days of auctions and being able to buy stuff. And that'd be lovely.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, but we did like, you know, leverage the equity in some to be able to, you know, purchase more. We, we did that very heavily. And um, it's only kind of recently that we've slowed down a bit, although we're in like a big, big portfolio refi now where we're pulling out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash to hope to make some more big acquisitions. That's awesome.
0: Okay. So essentially you're buying houses, you fix them up. you put tenants in that you rent them higher. And then once you have kind of forced appreciation by doing a remodel for people that are like back to the basics and want to know what the heck we're talking about. Um So essentially you make the property worth more by rehabbing it. And then you prove that this is really valued higher and that you can pull a higher level of rent. So maybe you were below market rent before, but now you've rehabbed it. You have this lovely property. You put tenants in it. You can tell like the inspector, like this is where my rent rate is now. And then hopefully if they will listen to that (laughs) as part of their analysis, and then you refi and hopefully pull the money back out that you invested in that property, at least partially. And so that's kind of the dream behind Burr is you then suck out some money and you keep on going and buy more with it.
1: Yeah. And since we bought almost all multis, like our our sweet spot is probably like four to six units per building. And so all of them are on commercial loans. So all of them require, they, they all have a five-year balloon on them. And so over, you know, the course of like 15 or so years now, we've gone through multiple cycles of these 15, these five-year balloons where the, just the market in Philadelphia has appreciated a lot. And so we've just constantly been able to, on these refis, pull more cash out and be able to, you know, keep, our cash flow stable one, because we've been in a depreciating interest rate environment for a very long time now. Right. And, um, two rents have been increasing. The property values have been increasing. And so it's, it's been a nice time to be investing for, you know, the last 15 or so years.
0: Yeah. And I still think the market is so solid to like force appreciation out of properties still, if you can find them and buy them. Right. I think that's the hard part because I'm like, you can still force appreciation, like amazing, right now but finding the deals has become a little harder but I don't think it's yeah what is your take on that because I think that's one of the few things like I hate the naysayers online who are like you can't find a house you shouldn't buy a property right now like all of that I'm sure I you think that's hear that it's, a lot
1: it's, the deal I mean I have you know investor clients who are buying deals every single month they're definitely there um and some of it you know is you may just have different risk tolerances than someone, you know, someone might be okay, $200, uh, you know, a door. And you may say, look, my minimum is 400. That doesn't mean you're right or they're wrong. It's just, you've got different standards. Um, And same thing with, you know, some people are there for an appreciation play. They're not looking for cash flow in the short term and vice versa. I do think that there's, there's no doubt there's an inventory problem, which is why we've had, you know, 18 months of bidding wars right now, but there's, you know, there's deals to be had. I think a lot of people are sourcing things off market. I mean, realtors are finding things to list, so you can find things to source off market where you're doing the same type of sourcing techniques that they are. You know, the direct mail, the calling, uh, whatever it takes to to find someone who's looking to sell. That doesn't mean you have to buy it, but it's you know, turning over the ground and seeing what's you know. What can be made there? I'm
0: trying to think what else you guys. So what other strategies? So you're mostly using, do you guys start out small residential or have you always been in the one, like the four unit to six unit niche? Like how did you figure out that's where you like to be?
1: Cash flow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just the way the zoning is in Philadelphia is that there's kind of these like clumps of like this is zoned to be a single or this is zoned to be two or three. And then there's like the next bump up. And so, especially if you had something like that's currently being used as a duplex, but is zoned where it could be, you know, four to six units, that's a major cash flow play there where you can say, Hey, if I can squeeze in two more units, whereas instead of having two big three bedroom units, maybe we have four small one bedroom units and it's near a college. That's perfect. That is our sweet spot all day because then we, you know, we've got the zoning in place, we can increase the cash flow. Um, we're not looking for you know huge places, but we're you know we're targeting this uh, student rental population really.
0: Your husband is he pretty hands on? Is he like the renovation guy? Does he oversee everything? Like what are his roles or what is his kind of niche in the
1: business? I think he's like puppet master at this point, um, for many, many years. I mean, up until very recently, I mean, he was the person going out there to, you know, snake a drain and to, uh, yeah. you know, help install a new kitchen or whatever the case may be. But more recently, I'd say he's more of the puppet master where he is kind of controlling our subs and he's, you know, coordinating things with tenants and whatnot, uh, to be able to make that all happen. But he's very rarely, um, hands-on at the, The one thing he does seemingly every year though is in between tenants without fail, there's always blinds to be replaced. And he's (laughs) always going to Home Depot and the one installing the blinds. And I know he did that again on our big turnover month this year.
0: This year was the first year I didn't paint my own house. Like, I mean, I have very few units. So I think I've painted like seven houses by now. And so this is my first year. I'm like, I'm not painting. I'm not painting this house. Like I need to outsource things. So I feel him on the blinds. Like it's hard to let go of like- (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have some pretty good painting skills, but at some point you have to say enough is enough. Right. I talk over and over again on here, like working on the business, not in the business. And it's so important to pull yourself out and be like the puppet master. Like that's the ideal role to be in, but like, you don't have to get rid of all your favorite things. Like if blinds still are like a source of joy, like he wants to go in and see like the finished products, like <laughs> one more time. I don't know. because I'm like, I love a good walkthrough.
1: It cannot be a source of joy. Like I, I hear like, am <laughs> like cursing about it every year about the freaking blinds. (laughs) Uh, But it's one of those things where like, we do have basically like during a turnover, like what happens, we get the place professionally cleaned, we get it painted. Uh, You know, if there's any sort of damage, we get it repaired. But generally speaking, like that's it. And the only damage that seems to happen without fail every year in multiple units is these blinds. And so rather than hire, you know, a handyman to do a few hours worth of work, he's like, I'm on site anyway, to, you know, deal with the painters or deal with um, the cleaning people. And so while I'm here, I might as well make myself useful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you guys are still self-managing, right? You don't have any property management. So he's really serving. Or do you do any of the property management as well?
1: I, I do the back end stuff. Like yeah. I'll do a lease review because you know I'm the lawyer and I have to keep the eyeballs on that stuff. Right. Um, but generally speaking, no, it's all him and our number one assistant app folio, which is our yes. property software.
0: I was going to ask next. I'm like, what systems do you have in place? So you guys are at folio and do you do all your bookkeeping through that as well? Or no, you... we
1: use QuickBooks.
0: folio is above my pay grade, but someday that's like what you aspire to be at. <laughs> you have to hit a certain number of units for Folio to make sense.
1: <laughs> I just imagine people at like the Bigger Pockets conference, which is going on right now, with like their right use folio status badge. <laughs> so
0: you guys were talking about okay, so you do a lot of bigger remodels then. If you're going from less units in a property and you're trying to get like single family, like it's interesting to talk about your strategy because it's a, so college town specific.
1: It's almost like we can get more. Like I'm just gonna make up numbers right now. Say a one bedroom would be a thousand dollars a month. So we could have four thousand dollars a month from this unit, or we could have a three bedroom, which say is sixteen hundred a month. So that's thirty two hundred. That's eight hundred bucks a month on the table that we're leaving off. Right. So the the value add is really kind of having these multiple of the smaller units, especially because. Um, A lot of our properties are in West Philadelphia, which if you're not familiar Mm -hmm. with West Philadelphia, it's an area called University City. There's University of Pennsylvania, there's Drexel University, there's University of the Sciences, and then not too far away, there's some uh, colleges in Center City. And so there's just a ton of students, grad students, med students, all of them. And especially as they get older, they're more likely to want like a studio or a one bedroom or something like that than, you know, live with, you know, six of their friends.
0: Right. They've had enough of that. We survive undergrad. Like you don't want to do. <laughs> They're over it by then.
1: But the undergrads they aren't. They aren't too bad. We we have our fair share of undergraduate students, and I think the hardest thing with students is just the turnover. It's almost every unit turns off over every year yeah <laughs> and so friend groups change you know they are only here for you know a one or two year grad program and it just it turns over a lot and so that's just kind of the nature of the beast and it doesn't come as a surprise because it, it's the same thing every single year
0: right because you know your expectations like I feel like real estate is so much like managing expectations like Totally. I'll, I'll watch, like, I don't know if you watch Facebook groups. Like I feel like Facebook groups are like the Kardashians sometimes with the real estate Facebook groups. Like that's how I feel about it. These people just, they're like, they like scratch the paint and like wore down the carpets. And I'm like, they lived there for eight years. That's normal wear and tear. Like college units, I feel like would really get wear and tear. Like you'd have to mentally prepare for like, everything's going to be soaked in beer. It just is like, I don't. I don't yes, care so how clean so- they are, but they're going to throw one party with some bad friends and it's going to happen. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there's no carpet in any of our units. We have either like the original hardwoods, which God bless them, they like take a beating. Yeah. Um, or if they weren't in good shape, then we've put LVP down. But right. um, that's also a good thing about these smaller units. Like if you're the friend who has the six bedroom house on campus, like you're the house party house. Um, <laughs> that and it's true. Throwing a house party in their like, 400 square foot, one bedroom. It's like, just I'm happy. like,
0: no one has a studio party. Like
1: <laughs> I've definitely attended them. They're yes. just more of a pregame situation yeah. than an actual party.
0: I've been to like a girls night, girls weekend camp out in the studio apartment where you have no privacy from one another because it's a studio apartment. So oh my gosh,
1: that I, that I've never done, but props to you. That's dedication to the party.
0: It was very dedicated. So that's really interesting. So student rentals are your niche. I think a lot of people are afraid of student housing and I don't, I don't quite know what that is. Is it like the destroying the properties or is it the turnover? Like, do you get a lot of people like questioning your investment niche or?
1: Um, I definitely think that there's people who see it as a different animal. And I think that's, mm-hmm. it is, I mean, I kind of look at people who have like hundreds of single family rentals. I'm like, really, is that the best choice? <laughs> uh, yeah. because That to me sounds like, man, that is like one roof per tenant. And that's one HVAC system per tenant. And it just, that to me, I'm like, ah, that sounds really intense, but they also probably have the benefit where some of these tenants are with them for like a decade plus, which also sounds, you know, like a nice little perk. Um, and so I, I think it's just a different animal. And I think that's why it's just so important to like niche down. Like I yep. am not looking for single family rentals. Like I would love to continue to buy in, you know the same few blocks that most of our properties are in. And so that just makes it much easier to scale. Whereas if I was to have, you know properties all over the place, in different asset classes in different, you know, sizes, those are to me. And I also think about it from a legal perspective like that's a different lease and that's a different like cycle. And for us, I mean, we turn over almost every unit in our portfolio between August 1st and September 1st, um, because that's when students go to school. Yeah. And so it's, it's a very intense month, but then that's it. And so like the thought of like sprinkling things throughout the year and like constantly having turnovers and constantly having like the possibility of a changing season, like that doesn't happen with student rentals. Like school's always going to start the end of summer (laughs) and, um, it kind of forces us to have a natural, like life cycle to this stuff uh, and a, a lot of predictability and I'm sure people who are investing in other asset classes they feel that you know same kind of like rhythm and like the different seasons of their rentals and maybe it's a longer stretch like for us it's very much the academic year and for some people they may like hey look most of my tenants are there you know two or three years and then they go buy a house like we're very much like that apartment before people buy and I've got one or two of those units where it's very much where like we get great tenants it's a you know I'd say more of a luxury apartment. But it's they're like stepping stone before they go and purchase a house and so we we know we only have them for like two or three years.
0: Yeah, and it's so true. I love your idea of like niching down. That's it's so true to figure out exactly where. But I think being able to explore. But there's so much like shiny object syndrome in real estate where everyone's like, "Ooh, they're doing like storage units, and they're doing like bigger and bigger apartment complexes, and like whatever." Brennan and Turner and David Green are talking about is now (laughs) is now what everyone's doing. Like it was storage units had all the hype, and now it's mobile home parks. And I'm like, but storage units were super cool like a year ago, like when I first got into bigger pockets. It's all about storage. Now yes. I feel like there's only a few people talking storage nowadays, and I mean it's still a wonderful asset class, but now it's all mobile home parks and looking at different things like that. And
1: Look, I also have a client about this today with the bigger pockets guys. They're syndicators now. Yes, they have yeah. a podcast, they have educational platforms, but they're syndicators. So whatever they're syndicating is going to be all that negative. Yeah, and so if they're syndicating mobile home parks, then mobile home parks are going to be what they say are like what you need to be investing in because they want your money. They want, they want their podcast listeners to be their investors. And it's not a bad business model to be, <laughs> to make for yourself. No. Um, but I, I think with anything there's, you know, ebbs and flows to any of these classes. I mean, everyone's like, you know, self-storage, self-storage, which, you know, makes a lot of sense for when you think about America demographically, you've got all these baby boomers that are going to downsize. They're going to die. Sorry, mom and dad, like, well, it's going to happen yeah. to all of us, but <laughs> we're all going, we're <laughs>
0: That's how it ends change. for everyone. Like,
1: oh, okay. <laughs> all right. But then there's also this whole supply and demand. So, okay, everyone's thinking we need more self storage units. At what point are we going to have a glut? And then, you know, in 20, 30 years, these are all worth nothing. The same way that, you know, people are looking at, you know, a lot of the, you know, office complexes in, you know, major metropolitan areas that are sitting vacant for the last year and a half. And people are like, are they ever going to come back? Are we going to be at, you know, 50% vacancy in, you know, these major metropolitan class A office buildings? And so, mm-hmm. Um, everything comes and goes. And that's why a big reason why I just like the, the residential, because people are always going to need somewhere to live, especially when you're talking like, uh, working class, um, accessible housing. I don't necessarily mean affordable housing. There's a huge need for affordable housing, but just accessible housing that that's not going anywhere. Exactly.
0: I think the people always need a place to live is so important. Like commercial real estate scares me for a reason. And I don't really, because I just feel like it's harder to predict like people need homes, but businesses change so much, especially in like modern times, like COVID like totally changed people's business models. And so it's crazy. You just like, didn't see that coming. Oh, I was going to ask you too. So do you find for student housing, do you have a lot of people like actually like default or not be able to pay their rent? Like, I was just wondering how this works in college, because in my mind, I'm like, okay, do you have really people paying a lot of their rent? Because they're just like YOLO student loans, like, I'm just going to pay for my rent with this? Or how does that?
1: Mom and dad and student loans are backing the whole operation. Um, okay. The I, we have I've heard, always had this
0: theory, but I've never tested it. So I was like, I need to ask you. I'm like, because I just feel like it'd be a very guaranteed way to make rent because someone's parents have signed somewhere and someone's student loans look good to get rentals. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we very rarely will just be like, oh, you've got student loans. That's enough. We're still going to want a parent co-signer on there. Um, and oftentimes when it's like multiple students, you know, we've got a two, a few two or three bedroom units uh, and we'll have like co-signers for every student on there. I think that just also makes the other parents for, feel more comfortable, right. um, but we do do it as one um the the bigger issue i find that we sometimes have and um is people wanting to kind of dip out mid-year either someone's not their friend anymore or you know they get an internship out of state and they want to leave And so with that, we, we've always just had a very, very flexible, um, sublease policy. Like we're not one of those people who's like, I'm going to hold it to them and like, you know, make them jump through 10,000 hoops. It's like, all right, let's work together. Let's get this place marketed. You want to sublet it? Let's do it. Um, you know, if your friend likes the person and they're qualified, then I'm not going to make this more difficult than it needs to be. Like we're, we're all on the same page. I want my rent to be paid. You want someone else to be paying the rent. Like teamwork makes the dream work. Let's do it. Um, and I, I, and that's the other thing I feel like they're in um, a lot of these Facebook groups. There's just a lot of like this animosity where it's like us versus them. Like the yeah. tenants are always the bad guy. And I'm like, wait, why don't, half these problems wouldn't be problems. If we just like looked at it, we're like, we both want the same thing out of these issues. Like we both right. want like the mold to be remediated or we both want, um, you know, this early lease termination to fundamentally just get you back on track where everyone's paying or payment plans or whatever the case may be is that it's not us versus them I don't know where this like false dichotomy came in where it's like if the tenant wins we must be losing I'm like if the tenant wins we could also be winning too like it it, (laughs) right
0: like help me help you yeah even the I mean at a so I had to, um, get rid of a tenant this year. Um, because she like was breaking all the terms of my lease and she was in my house hack in my basement for a whopping like 23 days oh, and broke the lease four times. <laughs> and I was like, help me help you. Like, I'm not your landlord. Like we are not going to be like kosher here. Like this just isn't working out. Like you want to smoke marijuana. I live in the same house as you. This isn't going to fly for me. And like, yeah. you're not going to be happy here. And I'm like, I know you're not going to love this and I'm going to keep your deposit because. This this is crazy, but also like you, do you really want another 11 months of me like watching over your shoulder? But also I don't want another 11 months of you breaking your leases. And so we like, even though it's a bad situation, I feel like we were able to like somewhat amicably figure it out because I'm like, clearly this isn't a good fit, like for either yeah. of us. And I'm like, you don't want to live here with all these rules, like. All right. So I have a whole little list of like all the fun legal questions that I was trying to think of. I'm like, okay, so a lot of people who are just starting out in real estate or pretty new follow the podcast. And so, um, I was just trying to think of like common things that came up. And so I think the first thing is like, I went online through like my state, like, .gov website, and I formed my own LLC. How terrifying is that to
1: you? <laughs> You know what? It's honestly not terrifying. I have a lot of clients who do that. If you, because I have clients, you know, they're other, they're also just business people. They may know how to form right. an LLC. It is not rocket science. Um, but there are some, you know, decisions that you're making, and so long as you understand, like when you're like clicking the boxes through these like online portals on the like, the state and the federal website, you know what you're answering and the implications of it. I don't have an issue with it. Um, I think the bigger issue I see a lot of times with the LLCs is that people create them and then don't know how to use them properly. And that's a big thing that I teach about in landlord law school, because it's not enough just to have it. You have to maintain corporate formalities. You have to keep uh, things separate. And if you're not doing that, then what can happen is uh, you know a big bad lawyer like me can come and pierce the corporate veil, meaning basically eliminate that LLC and say, you don't get any of the protections of it. Because you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, I want to have an LLC, but I don't want to bother or be, um, you know, go through the hoops of what it means to actually act like an LLC. And so if you do it yourself, that's fine. I think a lot of investors can do it. I teach people. I mean, I literally provide a video walkthrough of how to do it in landlord law school. So it's not something that you need, you know, a three-year law degree and, and, you know, pass (laughs) the bar exam to figure out.
0: Perfect. Okay. So I'm feeling, okay. I've passed one of the five tests that we're going to ask about <laughs> because I'm just making LLCs like it's my job online. Yeah. Um, And then so four, okay. Do you think you need an LLC per property or do you group properties and LLCs? How do you usually structure? So as you're scaling up in real estate, I've heard people say you need one LLC per house. I've heard people say, no, you can, like some people throw out a specific like, like network. Like if you have a $500,000 in real estate, that's one LLC. And then if you have a million dollars in real estate, that's one. And so it's like everyone has a different strategy, which yeah. is just real estate in general, but what's like, what are some perks or what are some good rules sure. of thumb?
1: So this is, I'd say one of like the million dollar questions that I get at- <laughs> If I had like a dollar for every time I'd asked, it, I probably <laughs> would have a million dollars. But the the thing is that there is no right or wrong way. And so if someone's telling you need to do it X way, like they're projecting onto you, hands down. It all comes down to like, what is your risk tolerance? The way LLCs work is that they pool risk. And so if you're okay saying, look, I'm going to kind of put one property in each LLC and that's all I'm comfortable with because I don't want one to ever touch the other, that's fine. It's going to be a different, you know, Tax return or Schedule C off of each one of those LLCs. You're going to have to do separate bookkeeping. You're going to have to do separate, you know, accounting and uh, administration of yes. all of that. You can do that. It can just get unwieldy. I will say, I don't know a single, you know, uh, large investor who has it structured that way. I just don't. Um, the
0: because in theory, like one of the big things and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I feel like I know just enough to be dangerous to have this conversation with you. So, okay. So like part of the, like keeping the like corporate veil from being pierced, like you really need separate bank accounts to keep all your financials separate. Oh yeah. Like, okay. So that's like a really big, like foundational thing. Like have your business bank account, keep all your finances separate because your business needs to like, you need to not need to co-mingle with anything. So I'm like, okay. So if you're doing an LLC per property, imagine if you have a hundred of those, do you have like to carry around like a hundred credit cards? Like, I don't know. Like that would be ridiculous to me. I'm like, how do you like, because I have a hard time keeping track of like, my podcast card and my personal card and my LLC <laughs> like no yes I just cannot
1: <laughs> yeah no I mean it definitely gets unwieldy um, and so I, I don't think that's a good long term strategy but if you're like hey look my goal is to have you know ten rental units or something maybe you can do that. I don't know. It seems like a lot of headache to do it and a lot of, you know, overhead also. I mean, that's 10 annual registrations. That's 10, uh, you know, tax returns. That's 10 bookkeepings and everything. And so it, it gets to be unwieldy, particularly for, I'd say, a smaller ROI, like 10 um, LLCs that maybe have 10 properties in them. Okay. That's probably, you know, we're talking at least hundred doors, assuming they're one door each. And so that's some serious rental income that maybe justifies uh, all of that administrative expense and overhead. Um, whereas if you're only talking 10 doors total, that that just administratively is a lot. And one thing I hate uh, for investors to do, and I see this a lot, and I, I think I've posted about it on social media before, is like, do you need asset protection from your asset protection? Like all this stuff costs money. And the goal of asset protection is to protect your money, not just from lawsuits, just to protect it from waste. And right. so are you wasting money kind of over having overkill now that being yeah. said if you're more comfortable having things separate and you're willing to kind of put in that legwork to do it by all means like there's no reason to do that to not do it because um it's a lot of work it's just i think it's very important that people need to understand like what it actually takes to be able to to administer um multiple multiple companies um but on the other hand like what you had said some people will do it where they kind of have like a a rough cap because we're all hoping yeah. for And so you're like, okay, it's got $500,000 worth of properties in there right now. Maybe it's got, you know, half of that is equity and we're going to hope for it to appreciate over time. But that's a rough thing. I have people who are like, I want a million or 1.5 or two, and they're okay with that. And of course you layer all this stuff with different types of insurances and, you know, making sure you've got the other legal stuff in place, right? Like it doesn't matter if you've got the best LLCs in the world if you've got a shit lease. Sorry. I don't know if I can curse. Bleep that out. You can
0: totally curse. Yeah. No. Oh, okay.
1: Um, That's my favorite or, adjective. So. <laughs> or if you're not putting things in, you know, writing with your contractors or your partners, like that, none of that will matter if you, you can have every LLC in the planet, but if you're not running a tight legal ship anyway, you're still going to end up finding problems. And you'll probably have more problems than the person who chose to invest in that part of legal versus uh, having LLCs in place.
0: Nice. That's so interesting. Um, so when to, this is your, okay. So if that was your million dollar question, this would be like your $2 million question. How early, when do you form your LLC? (laughs) This is the other one I bet you get all the time. And you're like, I'm going to beat my head against the wall if one more person asks me this question.
1: I feel like we're going through lessons one, two, and three of landlord law school right now.
0: Perfect. So if you want deeper details, she's a rock star and you can go through landlord law school.
1: (laughs) Yes. So when do you need to put asset protection in place? And so the thing to keep in mind is that there's no take backs. Uh, it only works going forward. And so if you were to put a property into an LLC today, but then a lawsuit pops up for something that happened six months ago, that LLC is not going to cover you. It was not in effect at the time of that incident. And so it only works moving forward. The other And it's the same thing with insurance. Insurance is not going to cover you if the the policy wasn't in place at the time of the incident. Think of LLCs the same way. Um, And so it only works moving forward. That makes sense. The other thing that I tell people to think about is what does the you know, tax and you know legal landscape look like in the areas where you're investing? Philadelphia, for example, is going to slam you with transfer tax if you want to move it into an LLC later. And that's based off of not the consideration amount you can give it to yourself for a dollar. It's based off of the tax assessed value. And so it's usually thousands and thousands of dollars to do these transfers down the line. And so a lot of people don't end up doing it. Um, and it's one of those things where it's usually fairly inexpensive. I mean, most states, I would say California being a notable exception, are like usually like $250 or less per year uh, to create and register these LLCs. Whereas if you punt it and you're like, great, well, now I've got to pay $7,000 transfer tax to move this property in, yeah, um, like that, the, the numbers don't add up. I'm a this is another shameless
0: I- plug for the Midwest. I live in Indiana. There are no rules here. <laughs> I mean, there are rules, but like barely, barely rules here. So, yeah, it definitely costs like 250 I think, to form an LLC. And then annually is like ridiculously cheap. Like I want to say like $30.
1: Yeah, It's, okay, it's something ridiculously low. $125 in Jersey. And then it's, I want to say like $80 bucks to renew. And so it, it's very, very affordable. Um, and I, I think for a lot of people, it comes down to their financing. Like, are you an FHA house hacker? Llcs are not for you right now. Right. Are you, you know, basically doing a burr with hard money or cash to begin with? Then there's no reason you can't be doing this from the outset. Right um, there, you don't have that you know financing barrier that makes it harder. And yes, I know everybody knows the interest rates are higher with commercial. There's not as favorable terms. You need to have more money down. We all know that, but nothing. No insurance will compare to an LLC because that's the other thing I see in these Facebook groups all the time. Oh, you don't need one; just get an umbrella policy. And I hate that advice because it's it's so limited in like a growth mindset. Like you can only have four um, mortgages to your you know personal line of credit, and so we only plan on getting four, and that's it because we don't want to have LLCs. And it it just doesn't really make any ter- sort of sense to me in the long term. Um, nor does insurance do what an and LLC does. It just, they, that does something special. It, it cordons assets off, um, and cordons the liability off. So yeah. Um,
0: I have my video off right now to increase bandwidth, but we just became best friends and she missed the whole thing because I have all the reactions, but I can't, like, I didn't want to interrupt you. Okay. So I am like a big, okay. So, and this is my like dream. I'm like, everyone to start your LLC. Like from the beginning, I don't really get why people delay because it's not very expensive, I guess, with the caveat being California. Um, but okay. Mostly because I do portfolio loans and I do commercial lending and Mm -hmm. people are drilling me all the time. Now that lending rates are so low, they're like, why are you doing commercial? I'm like, because at one point I had enough properties. So I like had five, like I had five different properties. We sold them all in the divorce and I'm like starting over again. So I'm like up to four units. So I like, I had, so I, for a minute there, I had this like beautiful commercial policy and I got to see like the shiny glittery awesomeness that are these like, big commercial insurance policies and like the replacement costs for your home are better. You have like better rent protection. Like it's amazing. And it, it knocks the socks off of this like umbrella policy I have right now. It just, it just felt a little safer and I don't know exactly why that is, but it's interesting you say that um, or kind of hit on that a little bit is just, there seems to be much more protection on the commercial insurance side. Awesome. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'll yes. just end up with yes.
0: Yes, perfect. Okay, so I feel a little bit better because I'm like, it's just better. But I needed better words to explain it than just do it. And <laughs> because I'm yeah. like, okay, are there downsides? I mean, there are costs on the outset, but again, like the big thing, you can't get a commercial loan typically unless you have two years of taxes, and you can't get two years of taxes until you start your LLC. So I'm like, get it cooking now. Um, yeah,
1: and LLCs are perfect for like the burr, whether it's hard money or cash. Once you've got a tenant in there and this property is cash flowing, banks love that. Banks yep. love that. Do they want to take the initial acquisition? No, probably not right away. <laughs> they're, they're not looking at that. But would they do a you know a cash out refi? All day. Yeah, All day. like my
0: commercial lenders are like oh, like find someone to buy a cash and we'll like cash out refi your deals all day, like no seasoning period. And I'm like, you're my best friend. So I just like the flexibility of the terms. Like you don't need to like sign away your firstborn and your kidney and like all of that to do commercial real estate. It's a little more friendly.
1: I I agree. I, and that's a big reason why we love like the four to six unit space. It's just no questions. It's commercial and it's, it's a, I find that it's a very solid, you know, kind of asset class to be in.
0: Yeah. And so to clarify too, like commercial is just like a, I don't know how to really explain it because I'm like, I still do single family and like a small multifamily. So like I have two duplexes right now. And so that kind of doing that is, you can still do what is considered like a, like a single family. You can still do like what looks like a residential, but make it a commercial investing strategy. Do you have better words of what I'm
1: (laughs) So, I, mean, I think the commercial's got like different terms to everybody. Like to me as a real estate attorney, I think commercial can be a, like something that they use as commercial, like an office building, a retail space, whatever it right. may be. That is commercial because the use is commercial. Right. There's also commercial from like the lending standpoint, which is maybe the borrower is an LLC, boom, commercial, or maybe the property is four units and above, even if the borrower is not an LLC, boom, commercial. And so you've got all these different ways that like these assets can be classified or funded uh, in a commercial Setting and that may also mean you've got different kinds of lenders because some lenders will lend on LLCs but they will only lend up to four doors, and then some lenders will do LLCs above four doors, and some will do four doors but they won't do it. (laughs) There's all different types of lenders out there, which is, um, you know, you got to kind of shop around, like, and the person who you build a relationship with, um, for some it may not work out for the others. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I mean, I all know everyone you know, wants to build their team and have these people that they can build relationships with, but you can't build a relationship with someone who's not you know, aligned with where you're going. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Maybe use them on another deal, but um, don't like try to force your deals down you know, the throat of a professional just because that's what they do and who you have a relationship with.
0: Right. So I currently talk to like three different lenders who do portfolio loans. So like small, like multifamily, they'll lend on it. Mm -hmm. And there's one guy I've done deals with, um, and there's a new guy I'm doing my, I'm refining my duplex, my new duplex with, and I've never used them before, but I really liked his stance. I really liked how he talked through all the terms. They had lower um, like closing costs and things. And so we just went over, and they were a little more flexible. And like, well, I have this great relationship, but I wouldn't mind having relationships with like two different people. Yeah, like where we both have like some street cred going. I'm like, it, I like having options because you never know, like, if one person will say no to one deal, but the other one might say yes. So I'm just, I'm just trying to build all the teams. Like, I Look, don't want to spread myself too thin, but I'm like, I don't like a you
1: monogamous.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it
1: doesn't work to like. To dabble with this stuff. I mean, even from a you know, a legal standpoint, like I've got clients who they're my clients, but I also know that they're other lawyers' clients. Like I don't do land use work currently. It's a nights and you know, weekends game where these zoning board meetings are. And I've got two little kids at home. It's just not something I'm interested with. And yep. I've got a friend who does zoning work. And so I'm like, hey, if you ever got these needs, go to this specialist. Like I'm your transaction person, I'm your finance asset protection person. But yep. if you yep. need zoning, go here. Or if you need to do an eviction go there. And so it, we all got our specialties and so do lenders and so do real estate agents. Like, I, I think we all, uh, actually I shouldn't say we all, oh, there are people out there who don't have huge egos about it. <laughs> it hurt. There, I was like, there's a ton of big, big, there's egos. a lot of big egos
0: in this space. I yes. yeah.
1: And so I don't want to make the assumption that there's, we don't have them, but there are people who, you know, I don't have a chip on my shoulder when I know my clients have other attorneys in their back pocket as well.
0: Okay. So we talked about LLCs. We talked about the importance of having good insurance. What are other things? Oh, and then like separate bank accounts, obviously like separation of church and state, like your private, mm-hmm. like your personal is personal, your business is business and they do not co Um, I've always wondered like how it works if you like need to take draws out of the business or put money in, like you can always put money in, but the draws out are more complicated, I believe.
1: So not necessarily just cut yourself a check or go to the ATM and withdraw it.
0: Um, Any other ways? I know you've talked, I went through, I listened to one of your webinars. It was like a free webinar and it was fantastic. Oh, and okay. I think you talked about more, more things that I'm hitting on, but I'm like, these are like the big guys that I know about. Is there anything that you think is overlooked a lot or what are other ways you can protect yourself?
1: Absolutely. And so What we talked about so far, like insurance, LLCs, those are what I call defensive asset protection strategies. They're what's there to kind of catch you when things go wrong. Like you Mm -hmm. got sued, great. Now your insurance, your LLC is going to come into action and help protect you. But they don't do anything to like stop these things from happening in the first place. And that's what I've called and, you know, trademark pending. Offensive yes. asset protection. And yes. You should offensive- actually
0: protect or trademark it.
1: <laughs> I, I, it I, it's in progress. Um, nice. And so offensive asset protection are things like good contracts, estate planning, succession planning. So that way we can prevent what are like frequent flyer red flags will go wrong if you don't plan for them types of situations. And so essentially it's get things in writing. And mm-hmm. there's tons of opportunities. It's very DIYable. It's very, um, you know, uh, approachable. And the and the good thing is, it's it's there for you no matter what your investing strategy is. If you're, you know, a house hacker, or if you're a flipper, or if you're a burn investor, or a you know private money lender, whatever your strategy is, this type of asset protection is there to protect you. And so. That's the kind of stuff where I I say, you know, there's nothing better than when, you know, someone wants to sue you and you just, you know, slide the paper across the table and you're like, actually there's this and everything kind of fizzles away. That's what I want you to have. I want you to be like, Mm -hmm. here's that email or here's that letter or here's that contract. And that's how you can really protect yourself because the reality is, is that, you know, disputes with your, you know, business partners or your contractors or your tenants Your LLC and your insurance don't protect you from that. Like that is out of your pocket problems. Mm -hmm. And so making sure you've got the writings on lock is where you can really kind of prevent what I call like the drip, drip, drip of like all these little things that can be, you know, $1,000 here, $2,500 there. Uh, you know, a month of vacancy or whatever the cost of, you know, hiring a new contractor can be like that is stuff is really expensive for real estate investors. And it I don't think it's always seen as a legal problem. I think it's like seen as like just like an industry, like the risk of doing business. But a lot of that stuff can really be tightened up with having good legal documents in place.
0: Yes. Um, I'm a huge fan of leases. Like I do all of my leases electronically. So that's kind of one piece of the puzzle, but you talk a lot about like contracts with contractors too. And I'm really bad at that part. Like I love leases with tenants, terrible at getting my contractors to put stuff in writing. So I need to take some better notes from you. And they (laughs) are
1: like liability, you know, nuclear bombs. Yeah. They, you know, Think about all the things that can go wrong with contractors that like can cost you like tens of thousands of dollars, like them running away with your deposit, them not doing the job, them blowing deadlines, them, you know, doing the wrong thing or using the wrong materials, them, you know, not abiding by what your understanding of the draw schedule was, or maybe you didn't explain what the draw schedule was. Now you're just fighting with each other because <laughs> you didn't put the stuff in writing to begin with, um, them. And this is what happened to me. And I think I shared this during the webinar was, um, them claiming that they were actually your employee and not your contractor, and that they actually got hurt on this job that like didn't happen and now want workers compensation from you. And so there's all sorts of things like that that can go wrong with your contractors. And we can you know really reduce, look, it's America. Anyone can sue anybody for anything, right, but right. nothing makes it go away faster than saying, actually, if you look at it in writing right here, no lawyer wants to waste their time to lose. We all yep. like taking yep. you know the hourly <laughs> retainer or whatnot, but it would be ethically improper for us to ride a losing case, and so um, that's where you would probably get fired by your lawyer, and maybe you'd go shopping and look for another one who wants to waste <laughs> time and your money for you know a few thousand dollars. But fundamentally, <laughs> it's having the, the stuff in writing is one of the the best things I can have. Because I can tell you right now, off the bat, almost every litigation matter that I have on my desk this year, where people in LLCs, but also people not getting things in writing. And so they're out, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for things that like, if they would have spent, you know, a few hundred bucks on the outset, maybe, you know, getting these contracts in place would have never been an issue.
0: Yeah, okay. they primarily contracts with tenants, or tenant, or contracts with like contractors and people doing work in the properties. Oh, all of it,
1: all of it. I mean, documenting things with tenants, documenting things with contractors. Partners are the other big one, where yeah. you know, you you know, go into bed with someone, even if it's someone who you think is like your best friend, like basically your brother, and it, yep. you know, the relationship <laughs> sours. I mean, nothing makes things go sour faster than you know losing money, yeah. and um, it's not a guarantee that we all make money. In, I'm in very
0: anti-partnership um, which is just a thing like, but I mean, but I use private money lenders, which is kind of tricky, but
1: yeah, I I love that. I mean, my podcast episode that's going live this week talks exactly about, you know, like why I don't really like partnerships either. And I think some of it is that people, step into partnerships in ways that they could have just had like a clean, open and cut relationship with someone. And I love what you just said there about having private money lenders, because a lot of people were like, well, I'll JV with this lender. They'll give me money. And then at the end, we'll split the profits or whatever. Whereas I'm like, you could have just had them be in your private money lender and paid them interest. And like, that would have been enough. You didn't have to give them a piece of the pie. You didn't have to have them have a seat at the table. And so, um, the same thing with like contractors and stuff like, Oh, we'll just partner together. I'll bring the deal. They'll do the rehab. And in the end, for some reason,
0: partnerships are like very sexy right now. I don't, I blame bigger pockets because I feel like they talk about partnerships and being like 50, 50 partners, a ton on a lot of their podcasts. And I'm like, I don't need a partner. I just need a money person. Like I just need. And so like currently I am working with this new private money lender to me and I've been wearing him down for like probably a year and a half now where he just wants to be partners. And I just hate the idea of it. And so finally I'm like, okay, if you want to say partners, but we're going to write up this contract where you're going to lend the money, I'm going to finance the rehab. And then in the end we can, you know, I'm going to refi out of it and pay your share back and like whatever it appreciates, like we can split it. Like you'll get a little bit more than your average, like, I guess like private money lender would, but like, we're trying to come up with like a hybrid thing where I'm like, I feel a little less partnery. Like I feel a little less dependent on their opinions and how they run it. And yeah, Yeah,
1: you don't have to give them equity. Just shift the terms in your note and say, look, okay. Instead of, you know, 10% simple interest, we'll give you 10% simple interest. And you know, this chunk at the time of refi plus 2,000 at the time of refi, whatever the case is. right? Um, Right. And you don't have to give someone equity to do that because once you start giving up equity, my God, it's like, you're putting the person on title. You are like getting in bed with the the partner. And so I think partners should be like a last- ditch scenario or something where it's like, there's obviously like a lot of like husband and wife teams. Right. Love it. Well, because um, I
0: lived like a terrible divorce. And so I'm like, I fear partnerships. I always will because like, you don't see it coming. You're not like, oh, my husband's like going to become a drug addict. Like it's going to be great. Like it never saw that coming. So like, you just don't know. And you're like, okay, but he was my handyman and we were great partners. And then yeah. you're great until it isn't. And then I'm like, oh boy. And you just, you know, you watch it kind of, so I keep telling people, I'm like, you, and I feel like with business partners, you'd even know them less. And I, like you, I lived with this guy for years. You know what I mean? Like you just don't think it's going to sour. And some business partners, like people go in and they're like all excited and they don't think about what they're signing up
1: for. Yeah. (laughs) And I I also think it's a little bit fear-based the opposite direction where they're like, well, I don't know if I'll be able to pay this, you know, this realtor or this wholesaler or this contractor or this money lender. And so it feels less risky to me if I just put, you know, if we just share, you know, the skin in the game, rather than sharing, you know, the risk of me having to pay this person, you know, monthly, like, what if I can't pay this person monthly? And so I don't think that's the case. And I think you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head where it's like, I really just need the money. Once yeah. I got the money, I can hire, you know, the contractor. I can get, you know, whatever it needs to happen to get done. I just need the money. yeah. And so money is money. You just need a bank or a, or a I was going to say a, a money partner, but I meant that in the, the non-legal. The sector. non, the non-money. I just need like a, you I to be, like, to you to, to be, be the bank. Yeah, yeah. Like either like the trusted hard money lender, the trusted private money lender, like someone who you have this relationship with where you say, Hey. I've got this deal. This is the return I'm offering. Do you want to put your money in it? Period. So,
0: when I went through all of my stuff, we did a receivership and like appointed someone to sell, like to liquidate all the properties because yeah. I'm like, the market's really hot in 2021. Like, it will dictate what the houses sell for because I'm like, I do not want to be the people at the table arguing over the minutiae of like what offer to accept logistically, a, a nightmare.
1: And I mean, you see these problems also arise with like estate planning as well. Like people are like, oh, I'm going to do real estate investing for generational wealth. And then they don't do any real estate planning or, you know, succession planning of what's going to happen to these assets. Next thing they know, they have, you know, four kids owning all of their properties (laughs) and it's like a logistical disaster to do yep. anything with it. And then what happens is it gets liquidated and that's not what you wanted. That's no. not what most people wanted. You know, if you wanted to give someone a whole bunch of cash, you probably could have, you know, invested in a crap ton of life insurance and had a lot less headache for <laughs> your whole life. But there, we know that there's this inherent benefit of, you know, cash flow and appreciation and, you know, tax benefits that come through owning real estate that if we don't structure it properly to give it to that next generation, it's like, well, that was a waste.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that is such a valuable, like, it's funny because I'm like, I've DIY'd like my LLC formation and like some operating agreements for better or worse and like, um, leases and things. I mean, I've taken some like good leases, I think online, at least like the bigger pockets, free leases. I started there originally, but I've kind of evolved now, but I don't know how, how good is it for leases? Like how good is a standard template for like your
1: state? So I think it really depends. I mean, I can tell you offhand, like I know the bigger pockets least in Pennsylvania is bad. It's just it's it's outdated. I don't know the last time they've updated it. The landlord tenant laws have been changing a lot in the last few years, and it's just it's not up to date on a lot yeah. of the more recent changes. Um, and so I always tell people, I'm like, if you can it's one of those things where I'm like, it's typically a few hundred dollars to get a custom lease template from a local lawyer.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: at least then, you know, it's up to date with me. I always do a strategy session with my clients where we customize it a bit. Cause in my point of view, there are, there's the lease template, but then there's a good lease, like having it be enforceable is the bare bones enforceable mm-hmm. is yes. That's like non uh, you know, not an option. The next step is like, how do we make it good? And that can be like, all right, well, I've got single families. And so that lease is going to look different than someone who's got, you know, multi-families where there's common spaces and maybe tenants have less, you know, maintenance responsibility. And then there's also things like, what does your lifestyle want to look like? What do we want the communication policy to be? What do we want, um, you know, there to be terms around, for example, in Philadelphia, there's a lot of ordinances and problems with snow removal. (laughs) Uh, We're here in the Northeast and we get snow every year. And so- you know, whose responsibility is that? What is the time frame? If they don't do it, what's the penalty going to be? How do we, you know, collect on that penalty? What's the, you know, uh, you know, issue of they, if they don't pay the penalty? And so thinking about all those things, like, and I tell my clients, like, and I do this every year and I actually have something like this in Landlord Law School, I call it an asset protection self-audit, where you go through and you're like, what didn't work this year? And now let's go through and make sure that doesn't happen again. And so do that every year with your lease and say, hey, this was something that really bothered me throughout the year. How can I tighten up my lease to make sure this stops being a problem for me? Um, And for us, for example, one of those things over the last 18 months was um, like, what does quiet enjoyment mean? Because a lot of people who were, would have been out during the day Mm -hmm. where everyone was working from home and the kids were at home and so everyone was just much more sensitive to everyone's noises and so like what is like unreasonable and what is just like you live in a duplex and there's someone who lives above you and you're going to have to expect to hear them and that's not a lease violation and it's not a reason to call the cops because yes that's how far that escalated and (laughs) it's just you live in a duplex like if you don't want to hear an upstairs neighbor don't live in a downstairs unit um And that's, that's one of those things that like we updated over the last year. And so periodically doing that. And then also periodically checking them with your, you know, real estate attorney to say, Hey, I haven't updated my lease in one year two years three years. Should we, you know, update it? And the thing is it's usually a lot cheaper for an attorney to give you their template than it is for them to like review someone else's and like add and make changes to it. Like we just kind of keep it updated. And then you say, okay, here's, you know, here's the 2021 lease that we're doing guys. Um, and that that's not always as easy when you come in with like a third party template and so when you have the relationship with an attorney over the long term you know those little tweaks or additions are like nothing
0: that makes a lot of sense i didn't think about that because in my mind i was like okay if i bring my lease to my attorney but that would probably be easier to work with him to get his like leases so or get his it, like standard template
1: perspective. Cause then we're like, well, there's this language and I have this sentence written this way, which I think is better. Is it worth reading? No change. We, us lawyers, we get all in our head about words and also yeah. <laughs> minutiae. And so from my perspective, I think it's just easiest just to, to get something from the lawyer. I know some people say, get it from whatever lawyer is going to be our eviction attorney. I don't think that's bad advice. Um, and that way they can, you know, When they go to evict they kind of know exactly what the contract is that they're going to court with
0: that's smart okay i learned some things yeah so right now i'm using so avail has like electronic leases and they have like local assist as like a part of their program i don't really know how it's vetted i should probably know the answer to this question but they add like local clauses based on your state so it's variable but again haven't reviewed it with anyone so probably should review with an actual human that lives in indiana or use their lease form, but I can upload it and still do like e-sign and things in there with my own. So
1: yeah, no, that's huge. I mean, we do the same thing where we've got, you know, our lease and then we put it up into Appfolio and we just kind of blessed it out for e-signature that way. It makes it a lot easier. And then I don't know how Avail is, but with that folio, it's almost like, here's this lease term and then that term and then that term. Yeah. And um, it makes it very easy to go in and edit things if we need to.
0: It's very editable, but I've added like a ridiculous amount of clauses now that I've had, like, I feel like every year I add more clauses. So that's like, I have a whole like marijuana detailed list now for my house hack where I'm like, please don't do this in my basement. <laughs>
1: Yes. And that's actually a really interesting area of law that I think is slowly changing. I mean, as marijuana gets, you know, decriminalized or even legalized in some places, like how does that look? Can you tell people no? Um, and I think people people tell people no, but what if someone then has like a medical marijuana card, does that fall under the ADA and are they protected Mm -hmm. as a disability? And so it's definitely an interesting and evolving area of law as, um, the, the landscape around marijuana has kind of rapidly changed over the last decade. Yeah.
0: I was looking online, which for better or worse, like to get some lease like clause examples. And there's whole different, like there's like 50 different clause options, depending on what, you know, what is legalized in your state versus not. And it was very interesting to read through like the terminology people were using and like saying like, okay, this is the, what we say for like medical, this is what we say for you know recreational, this is, and it's it's a whole new world.
1: It really is something. Cause I mean, even with you say, okay, I am going to al- allow medical marijuana because otherwise I would be discriminating, but right. do we have to allow it in smoking form? Like what if the person can do edibles? Like, there's no reason for my whole house to smell like marijuana and have the marijuana in the carpets and stuff. If you can just have edibles. And so we're not right. banning marijuana itself, but maybe we can ban the smoking of it. And so right. like all of those like little nuances, um, haven't really been like tested in the courts yet. Yeah. Um, and so, cause it would literally take someone who was like in that situation, felt that they were violated <laughs> with the exact like wrong lease term in place and then taking it to court and then like having the money to like bring it through the appeals court process. Right. And so it, it takes a while for there to be guidance, even for lawyers as to like what's good. And so for better, or for worse, sometimes it's kind of like, this is our best bet of what we think will hold up, but we don't know.
0: Yep. So speaking of not tested in court, um, this was one of my other thoughts. I'm like an LLC versus a series LLC. Have you ever explored that area? Is that like worthwhile, the hassle, or is it just like a buzzword thing for a while that is going to go by the wayside? A little
1: bit of a buzzword thing. I think it's one of those things that's, it's like, it's the cherry on top. I don't think it has to be the, the baseline of what there is. And so I will be upfront. Series LLCs are only available in like a dozen or so states. They're yep. not available everywhere and they're not available in either of the states that I'm licensed. So I've never made Okay. It for. Yeah. Uh, but they they seem to, the way that they're structured seems to alleviate some of the administrative burden that can come from having multiple, multiple LLCs, like one for each property. So they try to make that more affordable. The issue you then have is, is like, say, for example, state that has a series LLC is Delaware. So say you created a, a Delaware series LLC, and then you're using that to hold properties in New Jersey, which doesn't have um, a, a series LLC type of thing. How does that hold up in the courts? Because you're now subject to New Jersey law, you're acting in New Jersey, but you've got this foreign LLC <laughs> doing business there. And so that's where exactly where I said, that we don't have a lot of case law into like how this is going to pan out. Um, and will you get the you know asset protection benefit of it? Uh, even the IRS doesn't really know what to do with them quite yet. There's right. still decisions as to like administratively, how are we treating these? Um, and so I think it's one of those things, like, would I sink all my money in there to begin with, you know, and expecting it to to play out? Maybe, you know, it's something to consider if you're using it in the state where that's offered. So say I was using the Delaware series LLC to invest in Delaware, Yeah, probably less risky than using that to invest in like Pennsylvania.
0: Right. So Indiana offers a series LLC, and I've thought about it.
1: (laughs) It's definitely an interesting thing. I mean, even the LLC generally, like that was like created in the 90s, like they haven't been around forever. Um, And so even that is a very recent, you know, legal creation. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see other types of, um, you know, I'll say like a boutique <laughs> or because <laughs> I don't know, you know, that a series LLC makes sense in, you know, too many other industries other than real estate investing. Whereas a regular LLC, like basically every company that's being created now, except for ones that maybe have the intention of going public and having the IPO one day, they're, they're all LLCs. And so um, it just doesn't have this mass market appeal.
0: Yeah, And I've also, so this is, Totally unrelated, but I've heard that some people talk about. So, you want an LLC for your rental properties, but you, somebody, it was a post I read a while back, and they said doing S Corps if you do flips. And yeah. I didn't really know why that is or why that like rule of thumb is like stuck in my head for some reason, because I'm not a flipper, but I was just like curious while we were chatting, like why you'd structure it differently, like why you don't, like why the LLC is the better choice for rentals, I guess, specifically.
1: So, first off, I think it's important to note that an in- An S-corp is not a business entity classification the way that an LLC is. All it is is a taxation status. So you would have an LLC that you can make a tax, uh, an S-corp tax election on. So it's taxed like an S-corp. And same thing with a C-corp. A C-corp, you can make an election to have it taxed as an S-corp. And so this would be just a taxation Status and the reason that some people say to do this if you're flipping and I wouldn't say right off the bat talk with your CPA because a lot of it has to do with what your amount of profit is that you're bringing in, Um, but the important thing to kind of differentiate is that the type of income flippers are bringing in is usually like a short-term capital gain, whereas rental income is classified differently.
0: And so because I think most people's LLCs are they do like the tax as an S corp, right? Is kind of like the comp. This is where I have a nice CPA and he. Manages all of this for me, so
1: <laughs> I would say the opposite. I think most LLCs are passed through, where they're just taxed as a sole proprietorship or taxed as a partnership, um, because it's not usually tax advantageous to, to switch to an S corp, particularly with rental properties. Um, you would have to have my CPA at least usually says above two hundred thousand dollars a year worth of profit per LLC. Okay, so, interesting. Um, it's you know not an impossible threshold, but it's a high threshold. And so uh, talk with your uh, your accountant, but I think most of the time when people are creating LLCs, the default would not be to be an S corp. You can always make that election down the line come tax season.
0: I always ask people a question at the end of the podcast to um, pick people's brains. And so I am really big on outsourcing things. So just like personal life, professional life, like I don't mow my own yard. I have a cleaning lady. Like I'm very, like, I just think people need to think about like their life and their business and their hours very mindfully. So what are things like in your life that you, choose to like farm out essentially oh, and gosh. do different things.
1: We have a cleaning lady who comes once a week. We've got the kids in daycare. i say say ish time. They're like eight 30 or three o'clock. Um, and what else do we have? We have lawn people. I've got an assistant in my law firm. I've got another attorney in my law firm <laughs> and nice. all of those people, while they're like needed to like function at, at, for a very long time, I felt like I needed to do all of that. Like I needed to be the one with every client and do every single part of my business. And so as I say this now, it may sound like, obviously like oh of course you've got like another lawyer of course you've got like an assistant um that was not the mindset i had for a very long time who
0: came first um, the assistant or the other lawyer the assistant yeah I I usually like people talent. start like with an assistant i think is a good starting point
1: yeah because i always try to farm out like let me get rid of 15 an hour tasks and then let me try to get rid of 50 an hour tasks and then um you know kind of scale it out that way yeah and I was very much in like a DIY mode for a lot of the parts of my business. Like, Hey, let me try to figure out how to do, you know, app folio or click up or Kajabi all by myself. And now that like all this stuff is leveling up to the next level. I'm like, no, let me hire like subject matter experts to come in. And like work yep. their magic. Like I don't need to be the expert in every piece of tech that I use. Because your time and- is either going
0: to be like, you want to spend, be like present with your kids. I don't want to be like cleaning or like doing my yard. You know, I'm like, I want to see them when I'm not working because we're busy. And then when I'm not doing that, it's like quality time with family, or I need to be doing like the hundred dollar an hour tasks, like or above, would be like mine, and then trying to get rid of the other tasks that take up so much time in my day.
1: Totally, so. totally. And and the other thing I've been really working on really since like mid this summer. Like I felt like I was approaching burnout. I mean, it was just for better or for worse, it's been a gangbusters here in real estate. And so it was just it kind of hit me after like a year and a half of, you know, being in this crazy, crazy market with clients and everything was that I rest is like a non-negotiable. And so, yeah. you know, refinding my Kindle and my love for reading and playing piano and just playing with my kids and hiding my phone somewhere. So I don't even look at it yes. has been, um, key for me, but also I see it pay off in the in the long term as well like I don't see it as like oh I need to like rest because like I need to do my morning routine and it's like part of this feeling of being productive like it's okay to just rest
0: I don't have a morning routine I like every day is slightly different for me I just like wake up and like it just I feel like my life is slightly subject to the toddler and what she's doing so
1: I yeah. I had a morning routine for about a week over the summer. Um, We came back from visiting family in Israel. We were super jet lagged. I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning. I was like, this is great. I'm going to do like my whole morning routine. And then I was just like, I'm really tired. And so (laughs) I'm not doing that anymore. And I think basically every woman who's been a mom through the pandemic has probably reached this point where just like, I don't know how much more stamina like I have for
0: this Exactly. Yeah. I hit my breaking point like two months ago. Like I think it was July. I was like, why am I just crying? Like the day job was like kicking my ass and I'm like, this is not sustainable. Yeah.
1: It was July for me too. I was like crying every day to my husband. He's like, so just chill. I'm like, it's not that easy. It's not that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel like I've created a monster because I'm like, I want to scale up in businesses and I have a full-time job. So like you relate very hard, Where you're like, okay, something has to give. And it's clearly me right now. And that can't be the answer going forward. All right. Well, thank you so much for all of your time. This has been so much fun. I love like picking your brain and there's probably so many questions I have to go off of, but this definitely got me started. And I feel like I my real, or my lawyers gonna appreciate me more when I come to him and like ask for his lease form instead of like bringing him my like 37 clauses I've Googled off the internet. So I think you've done everyone a favorite. Me, like,
1: okay. <laughs> like these are the things I've added and I want to make sure, like, I always ask for my clients. I'm like, what are you working with right now? And so I can kind of see, cause they usually it's all tacked on at the end. And so I'm like, let right. me see what you have and like, make sure it's legal and right. probably get it better phrase than what you have.
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. So I think it'll be a good starting ground, but yeah. So this has been fantastic. Um, so tell everybody where they can find you and what you're kind of doing and where, you know, where, where all the places you're at right now.
1: Sure. So I spend too much time on Instagram. Uh, you can find me there at Bonnie Gallum ESQ. And that is, I love showing kind of behind the scenes when I've got like horror stories pop up. I've also got uh, my own podcast uh, called Good Bones Real Estate Investing, which is a legal podcast for real estate investors. And I also am hosting another round of the free workshops the end of October. So you can sign up at bonniegallum.com. Us forward slash workshop, very nice. creative. I know,
0: I like it. No, it's simple and I love it. Yeah, I for my Zoom calls, my password is always Sarah because I'm like, it's easy, oh, brilliant, <laughs> done. Brilliant. Yeah, it, it takes the village apparently and keep it simple. So, yeah, no, but do your free webinars, they're phenomenal. I loved every minute of it, and I just think I really liked the. If I was doing so many defensive moves and I wasn't thinking offensively as much, like I had dove into leases, but there was like a whole world of things that I was like, just leaving, hanging out there and hoping for the best and like put out fires. Like I'd love to be like a little more proactive with my lease additions and not like scrambling to be like, what, what did my lease say about marijuana again? I need that now. So don't be that person.
1: Okay. <laughs> hey, it, it happens to the best of us when you know better, you can do better. Exactly.
0: Well, this was unsuper super fun. Thank you for the lots of your time. I appreciate it
1: very much. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun.
0: Gosh, did you all just love this episode? I hope you're enjoying each of these podcasts as much as I am. If you are, please go subscribe to the podcast and spread the word by sharing your thoughts on Instagram. If you are not already aware, I'm pretty much obsessed with Instagram. So seriously, come find me. Instagram is the place where I'm going to announce every new podcast episode. I also share new products as I post them into my store. And I also am just going to be oversharing way too much about my personal life as a DIY landlord and a working boss mom. Thanks so much for listening.